The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, and chapter 24, verses 13 through 32. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the words have delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That very day... That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem? who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village in which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn with us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Mary Linda. Those are two passages, one from the very beginning of Luke and one from the end. They're at the beginning of Luke when he says, I'm intending to write an orderly account of the life of Christ. And then at the end when the risen Christ is walking with these travelers on the road to Emmaus. And in the course of that conversation, he tells them all of scriptures about him. And their hearts burn within them as they're listening. I've seen this sermon on the calendar coming for a while uh, in our Doubting, Doubting Christianity series, Isn't the Bible Unreliable and Outdated? And I want to tell you the basic outline. There's kind of three parts to what I want to do this morning in this message. Uh, the first is a bit of show and tell. 
The second is I want to I just ex- say a word on academic integrity, uh, intellectual integrity, critical thinking. Uh, and then I want to give you, in what will happen more quickly than you imagine, ten reasons why we should trust that the Bible is reliable. Okay? Uh, that will probably be the shortest part. Um, so that's where we're going, in case you're somebody who likes a roadmap. But I've seen this, this sermon on the, on the calendar, and I have to tell you that... You're looking at a person whose testimony is that my life has been transformed by Scripture. Here I stand. I, I, don't, have another, I don't have a truer testimony to give you than that there, I can't think of a thing in my life that would be what it is if it wasn't for the Word of God. And seeing this Sunday on the calendar coming and knowing we're going to talk about the validity of the resurrection and suffering and all these things, which are all, I love getting into this, but seeing this one has been kind of this, this holy moment for me. And that leads me to the show and tell um, that I, I've brought something here. I've brought this. This is my first Bible. This is a Bible that a, my wife's over there, a girlfriend gave to me in high school, <laughs> she's scowling at me. Bad, bad. It's a student Bible, a Zondervan student Bible. It's all water-stained in here. And, but when I look through this, I, I drew all over the place. It's just, it's full of highlighting. When I became a Christian as a 15-year-old, the Lord gave me a hunger to read. So I read I have this Bible in a year plan thing that that has been in my Bible, and I I did this twice in the first year. I just, I read, and I read, and I read, and I read, and I read. And I didn't understand a lot of what I was reading, but it was a transformative experience to just set my eyes on verses of Scripture, ancient words written in cultures that I had no knowledge of, in languages originally that I didn't speak, about a God I barely knew, geography that I couldn't have found on a map if I tried, and yet my eyes would fall on things like, like, like this. I would, I, would, I would see passages of Scripture that would say to me things, oh, here's something I highlighted. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth or boast in their great riches? No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. I read words like that. I'm just, I'm, ra- I'm seriously randomly just looking at things. I'm not going to do this all morning. But I, I, you know, I would read these passages and, and my mind and my heart is just spinning. I come across this passage in Colossians and it was a transformative verse for me. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by cross. Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. 
I'm reading in Scripture that's telling me there's only two things you can be. You can be an enemy of God, or you can be somebody who is pure and blameless in his sight, free from accusation because of the finished work of Christ. And the page is just, there's more highlighted than not highlighted here. I'm not boasting in my discipleship. I'm not boasting in my devotional habit. What I'm telling you is I'm a person who was given a Bible, and I started to read it, and I'm 46 years old now, and I have not stopped. And it's transformed everything I know. Um, that's testimonial, right? I'm giving you my own personal testimony. It's experiential, but as an argument, it's not a weak experiential argument. And the reason it's not a weak experiential argument is because I am by no means alone. Millions of people have had a similar experience. And so we're going to talk about this, this scripture where Luke says, this is an orderly account of the life of Jesus, of which Jesus says, this whole thing is about me. Why would anybody trust scripture? Isn't it unreliable and outdated? Why would anybody look at an ancient book like this and think, what's the difference between that and Beowulf? You know, what's the difference between reading this ancient text and another? And that's what I want to get into this morning. So that's show and tell. Academic integrity. Listen, here's one of the fatal flaws of our culture. We say pretty brazenly, because we don't think well critically, we say if something doesn't make sense to me, it must not make sense at all. If I don't understand it, the thing I'm trying to understand, the problem must reside with it. And so you look at an old text like this and somebody who's never once read a a single article on the validity of Scripture or canonicity and how Scripture is preserved and passed down. Somebody who's never said, it's so old, why would anybody trust that? As though, there's no que- as though there's no good answer to that question. And, frankly, as though they're the first person to ask the question. <laughs> and, and if we want to be people who are academically honest, then there are some things we need to do. And one is we need to acknowledge that there is nothing new under the sun, that no one asks an original question anymore. Nobody is the first one asking a question. And chances are... If it's a question with heft, if it's a question with, with philosophical and theological significance, not only have other people asked the question, but they have asked the question and written books on the question and given their academic lives to researching the question, and those books can be found on library shelves that you can go and check out and read. And there's nothing more frustrating to me as a pastor than when somebody comes and says dismissively, why would anybody believe this because blah, 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 blah. And I say, actually, you're asking a pretty profound question that theological schools have been built around, that volumes have been written on, that people have given their academic lives lives to researching, traveling the world, learning languages. Would you like to read one of those books or even a digest of one of those books? And they say, not really. (laughs) Okay, then what are we doing, right? A word on academic integrity. 
To examine the reliability of Scripture is to venture in to an academic arena called epistemology. Epistemology is a big word. It's, it's, the, it's the science and the art of knowing something. How can you know something? How can you know something that's true? We need to be critical thinkers in terms of, of thinking through, why would I trust that the Bible is reliable? Are there reasons for this? Because Christianity is not a faith that calls us to check our minds at the door. It calls us to ask, to interrogate, to search, like the Bereans in the book of Acts who test things. Right? So we need to be thinking people. Christian people need to be thinking people. If you, let's say you're not even a Christian, but you're somebody who fancies yourself to be a spiritual journeyer, right? That you're on a spiritual quest and a spiritual journey. The only pushback I would give to that is to say, really? Or are you just spiritually floating? Because it's one thing to be spiritually floating and just kind of, I don't know what's going on, and I'm really not putting forth any effort to try to get any answers to my questions. I'm just kind of living free form out here. And it's another thing to say, actually, I have some pretty serious existential questions about the meaning of life, why I'm here, personhood, what that is. Is it any different than being an, an alligator or a dog? You know, like, what these big questions? Search them. Think. I want to begin with three thoughts that I think we can universally, three ideas, truths that we can universally acknowledge, whether you're a Christian or not, that have to do with the question of the reliability of Scripture. Okay? So you test me on this and tell me if these are fair and not, and I think these are unbiased. Okay? I think these are unbiased foundational ideas um, that don't require faith in Christ to acknowledge and say that's true. Number one, our generation is not the first generation to question the reliability of Scripture, okay? So we are the first generation to have Twitter, uh, we're the first generation to blog, but we're not the first generation to question the reliability of Scripture. Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun, nobody's asking an original question. When kids go to history classes and they say, why am I doing this? This happened so long ago, it doesn't matter at all. It does matter because... We come into this world thinking everything is happening for the first time, and it's not. So, number one, we're not the first generation to question the reliability of Scripture. Number two, this is another fact, history houses libraries of volumes from highly educated men and women who have devoted significant portions of their academic lives to the question. And it's been a part of Areas of study like epistemology, hermeneutics, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, Old Testament, and New Testament scholarship. Schools, seminaries like Harvard, Princeton, Oxford, Covenant, Westminster, Vanderbilt, Duke, Gordon-Conwell, and countless others would not exist without the academic quest to study and understand Scripture. They would not exist without the quest to study and understand Scripture. So we need to be careful walking into a room with a dismissive idea that it's just silly to take the Bible seriously when all of this has been going on historically because it must not be silly. So we're not the first generation to question. Lots has been done on this question. And then third... 
The third fact I guess I want to give is that the trustworthiness of Scripture has not yet been easily toppled. So still millions of people, smart people, thinking people, are putting their faith in the testimony of Scripture. It's an irrefutable fact that that's happening. And so if our questions, with all of that academic rigor behind them, all the history behind wrestling with it, haven't yet shown Scripture to be unreliable, out of hand, then we should assume this is because there are enough reasons to give it the benefit of the doubt in terms of credibility. There has to be something there to it. So I'm doing critical thinking right now. We're doing it together, right? But it's important. I want to start here so that we can locate ourselves on the map. All of us bring major questions to life. All of us. No one can say that they operate outside the realm of faith. Doesn't matter what you believe, faith is involved in it. So we all operate on belief. We trust in what's unseen. I take a drink of milk trusting that it's not curdled. I sit in my chair trusting that it's not going to break, even though I haven't tested it yet, right? I'm just trusting. I'm taking it on faith, and I have reason. And we also bring doubt, right? We bring doubt. I doubt things because there are other things I believe that make this other thing seem implausible to me. And so we doubt, we believe, we have faith, we have skepticism, If you and I are not aware of how our presumptions hold together, then what we may do is we may end up just doubting and dismissing a lot of things because they just don't make sense to us. And because it doesn't make sense to me, it must not make sense at all. But that doesn't mean that the problem lies with the implausibility of the thing being doubted. Are you tracking with me on this? Maybe the problem is not the obvious fatal flaw you see in the thing you doubt. Maybe the problem is in this vacuous lack of information that you possess. I I hope that's not offensive. I don't mean that to be offensive sounding. But we would do this in any academic field, right? We would do this with oncology. We do this with educational models. We do this with politics. We do this with economics. We do it with all, you, you know, people just kind of chime in, like, I know how to fix the problem between the U.S. and China in 140 characters on Twitter. Maybe it's more complicated than that, right? So, it's important for us, and maybe what I'm advocating here for, for here most, is that as Christian people, we would be critical thinkers and we would be humble about it we would be very quick to say, I recognize that if there is a complex question that I'm raising, somebody's probably raised it before, and they've probably made some progress with it, and if I'm really interested in the question, maybe I should dig into it. Maybe I should spend some time examining it. So we need to think and not dismiss. Ten reasons to trust the Bible. We ready? Put your seatbelt on. This is going to f- go fast. And I will, you know what I'm going to do? Um, when I preach at weddings, I do, I do a homily at weddings, and it's a seven-minute homily at the, at the high end. And the reason I do a seven-minute homily at, the we- at weddings is because I know that two people in the room are not listening to me. 
the bride and the groom. And, and they're the ones I'm talking to. So I don't go long, because they're, they're, and then I give them my notes afterwards. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send out an email this week that'll be these 10 reasons to trust the Bible. I'm just going to cut and paste it from my sermon into an email, and I'll send this out. Um, so here, 10 reasons to trust Scripture. When we examine the reliability of the Bible, we have to take some things on faith. You just have to, um, as you with anything. But trusting the reliability of the Bible is not blind faith. It's not blind faith. There are reasons to trust it. Number one, the claim scripture, scripture makes about itself. The books of the Bible claim to be the word of God. If they are not, then this is a pretty big error, <laughs> right? That should lead any thinking person to question the integrity of the whole. So if there are parts of scripture that are saying this is the word of God and it's not, then we should question the integrity of the whole. 2 Timothy 3, 17 to 18 says Scripture is God-breathed. Romans 19, 17 equates Scripture with God's own voice. Number two, the testimony of Jesus himself. Jesus talks about Scripture as the Word of God and employs it with authority. And he says, as we read in our passage today, that it's about him. So James Montgomery Boyce, a pastor who passed away a little bit ago, um, brilliant scholar, he said this. He said, Jesus so identified himself with Scripture and so interpreted his ministry in the light of Scripture that it is impossible to weaken the authority of one without at the same time weakening the authority of the other. They were bound together. If Scripture wasn't authoritative, then neither was Jesus' teaching and neither was Jesus'. Jesus' life was a fulfillment of the law. Joining through his ministry everything written in the Old Testament with everything that would be written in the New Testament after his death. Jesus had this high regard for obeying what was written. But he also submitted to what was written. He obeyed the law and in so doing he fulfilled the law. He taught the scriptures and he taught that they bore witness to him and also that his coming bore witness to the authority of scripture. So, Jesus' testimony about Scripture itself is a reason to trust it. Third, the doctrinal and ethical superiority of the Bible over any other book in history. There's never been another book with as consistent or consistently applied ethic for social and religious life than Scripture. The Ten Commandments, for example, are regarded historically inside of Christian circles and outside of Christian circles as kind of a master class in ethics, a succinct human ethic for how to treat each other. So the doctrinal and ethical superiority of the Bible over any other book in history. Number four, the power of the Bible to affect the lives of its readers. I've already testified a little bit to this personally, but it's the book that understands its readers. This might seem on its surface to be a bit subjective, and I suppose to a certain extent it is a bit subjective. But here's the thing. The volume of testimonies of people who have experienced life-changing impact from reading the Bible across generations and around the globe tells us this isn't an ordinary thing. And so it shouldn't be easily dismissed. Number five. Biblical writers would not have claimed it was the word of God if they knew it wasn't. For a book with, and this gets back to the ethical backbone of the Bible. For a book with a strong ethical backbone and an emphasis on honesty, 
if the Bible presents itself as a genuine work of God and it isn't, and the people writing it know it isn't, then it fails on its own argument of being honest. So biblical writers wouldn't have claimed it was the word of God if they knew it wasn't. Number six, the extraordinary unity of the book. Now, this one right here is, is a bit of a mind bender, and there's lots written on this, and you should explore this. You should read about the canonicity of the Bible, uh, the coming together of these 66 books, because here's the thing. The Bible is comprised of 66 books that were written over a period of roughly 1,500 years by 40 different people, different cultures, education levels, socioeconomic backgrounds, and languages. These are people who would have differed, uh, people who would have, no, sorry, people who would have differed over many things are compiled into a book that then holds together with unmatched internal consistency. And not only consistency, but maturity. In other words, things that are planted in the book of Genesis and Exodus and in the life of David, we see those things come to maturity by the time we get to the end. Prophecies that were made millennia before they were fulfilled. Number seven, the Bible's uncommon accuracy. Uh, the Bible was written during an era when historical accuracy was not at a premium. Um, in fact, I, I, I've been to Egypt. Has any of you ever been to Egypt? It's, it's, it's exhausting. Um, there's, everything is, is old uh, and, and dug up, and there's a lot of history, and it's amazing, it's breathtaking, and eventually it's just, it just overwhelmed me. Uh, but one of the things you see is hieroglyphic walls, right? And hieroglyphics are, are basically pictorial tellings of stories, and a lot of them are tellings of battles and how things went. And there'll be a hieroglyph about a, a pharaoh, and something they did in some battle. And then some other pharaoh will come and replace him and will vandalize the hieroglyphic and turn the pharaoh into a woman and turn the depiction of victory in battle into defeat or turn a depiction of defeat in battle into victory. And so there's a lot of things that were happening in the archaeological eras of Scripture that, were, that had no intention of being accurate, and yet the internal and external accuracy of the Bible is unique for its time. And then archaeology continues to lend plausibility to the biblical account. And books like Luke and Acts present themselves as historically accurate books. We just read that from Luke in the beginning. This is an orderly, accurate account. And he backs that up with a lot of political and cultural references that were specific to the time. Number eight. See, this is going fast, isn't it? Fulfilled prophecy. No getting around this one. There is just no getting around this one. Uh, and it's a huge subject, and it's one that, again, there are libraries on this subject. The Bible contains explicit prophecies, many of them, that have come to pass. A couple of examples are Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, which go into pretty great detail about the historical crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And they tell us very specific things, that his garments would be divided, lots would be cast for them that he would be like a sheep led to its slaughter and he wouldn't defend himself and open his mouth. Things like this that were happening. Micah 5.2 predicts that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. That's not like saying the Messiah is going to come from New York City. That's like saying the Messiah is going to come from Elwood, Indiana. Right? Bethlehem was a small, out-of-the-way place. There are also prophecies about 
exile and the return of Israel that tell what eventually did happen. Precisely. So fulfilled prophecy. Number nine, the Bible's preservation. So we still have it, which is significant. Uh, you know people debate whether William Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, right? There's, there, there are academic there are scholars who, who are focused on, was William Shakespeare really a person? And is one person responsible for all of the stuff that is attributed to William Shakespeare? And the jury's out on some of that. That was way more recent, right? Here's a book that's been translated into hundreds of languages. It's been preserved for millennia. It's a best-selling book in the world. It's been preserved through handwritten copying, the work of scribes. And when you look at footnotes in your Bible... It mentions early manuscripts and variations, and there aren't many of them. It's a reference to the fact that there are many multiple hand-copied scrolls, parchments, papyrus copies, and they bear little variance from one to another because preserving this text mattered a great deal to the scribes who were charged with that task. Nobody was just flying by the seat of their pants and preserving this. If you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, what that is was a find near the, sea, near the Dead Sea um, in these caves where a, 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 basically a tribe of scribes lived and copied scripture, and they find these scripture fragments that are ancient from Isaiah and other books of the Bible, and they are right. They're what we have. Number 10, lives that have been changed. This is related to the power of the Bible to affect the lives of its readers, but I'm talking about something a little bit more profound here, a little bit more of an unexplainable phenomenon, and that is people's lives being transformed by a verse of Scripture or by hearing Scripture read. It's not just I studied and I learned and it transformed, but, but having these kind of encounters with the Word of God, and it's living and it's active and it changes somebody in a moment. Some famous examples of this would include C.S. Lewis, Charles Wesley, the Apostle Paul, St. Augustine, Martin Luther. When he was reading the book of Romans, he wrote this. While Paul was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation as an assurance that was given me that he had taken away my sin, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Luther had that experience reading Romans. Look at the examples in your own life. Don't you know people who would tell you their lives were transformed by the word of God? Can you think of another book in existence that has had that depth of transformative change in people's lives? There isn't one. There isn't one. I'm somebody whose life has been transformed by the content of Scripture and the Lord working through it. It started when I was little, 15, <laughs> even before that. But when I was 15, the Lord gave me this appetite to read. And that appetite comes and goes, by the way, I got to tell you. I go through seasons where it's dry for me. And I go through other seasons where it comes alive. I am fortunate to be in a role where my job is to spend time studying Scripture. And it keeps my nose in the book in some beautiful ways. 
And here's what I want to tell you. A person can read this book every day of their lives. You can read it through twice a year for your entire life. And you will not exhaust all that there is to see and all that there is to learn. So you won't ever be done with the Bible. Every week when I prepare a sermon, every time, I see things that are new. I see things that, details that shape my heart and sometimes really blow my mind. One this week was that statement at the end where they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us? And I just stopped and I thought, what was that? What do they mean? What was happening to them? Because they were having this experience and they shared it, but they didn't speak it to each other until after the fact. But they had a moment where they're hearing the risen Christ talk to them and there's something going on inside of them that knows this is not an ordinary conversation. I don't know what it is. We're not meant to live without a compass. God's word is truth. And so I pray that we would learn to love it. As a church, one of our tenets and our vision is that we would be people who worship the Lord on Sunday and also on Monday through Saturday. And the way that we do this primarily is through scripture and prayer. It's one of the foundation, it's the jeans and t-shirt of the Christian faith, right? Never goes out of style. It always kind of works. Scripture reading and prayer. And so my prayer for us as a congregation among other things, is that we would be a church that loves the Bible. That's how I want to teach it. That's how I want us to engage with it. That's how Tim and I think through the services, and that's why we read a lot of Scripture. We've had a lot of Scripture in today's service already, and we're going to have more. You may learn to love it slow, and you may learn to love it late, but I pray that we'll all learn to love it. Pray with me. Father, we pray to you because in your word you tell us to. And you tell us things there that bear out. That you are attentive to us. We don't always see how, but you are not silent. And uh, so, Lord, I thank you for that. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your word. This book that is filled with stories of people who fail and struggle and doubt and trip all over themselves trying to be right and getting it wrong. You're the hero. You're the only hero of the book. And yet you work in and through the lives of people like us to do more than we would ask or think. And so we thank you for that. Lord, as we come to your communion table here, we come as people who are coming by invitation to engage with you in this thing that in Scripture we read you telling your disciples to do this and to keep doing it in remembrance of you. And so we do here in 2019 in Tennessee. Thank you for the reach of your word, which is living and active. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.